So we're picking it up in Genesis chapter 12 as we continue on this incredible journey, this great flight, this overview of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation as we just begin to kind of look at this big picture of God's story. And the Bible is more than a history book. It is his story. It's all about God. And that's the great thing that we get to do is we kind of travel through scriptures here and soaring through scriptures more importantly is we get to kind of look at things from a fresh perspective, maybe a bit of a different, a new perspective as we see just this big picture that's going on. And so we started this last week, we got through only 11 chapters, and this week we're going to look to finish the book of Genesis, all right? Now the book of Genesis is the very foundation for everything. If we don't get Genesis, we're going to be a little bit lost on the rest. Genesis is the book of beginnings. That's what the very name in the Hebrew Bereshith means. It means in the beginning. And the term Genesis that we use today, of course, it just you know refers to that origin or source. And so with Genesis, we see indeed that it is the origin of so many things, the source of, of so many beginnings. It's the beginning of creation, the world, life, sin, marriage, families, cities and culture government we see the the beginning the origin of just redemption and and god's plan interwoven through all the scripture and we see it's the beginning of the hebrew nation and so last week we saw four key events we saw the formation creation chapters one and two we saw the fall chapters three to five we saw the flood in chapter six to nine and then of course the fallout from rebellion and sin chapters 10 and 11 well Here today now, we're going to be focusing on four key people now, all right? We're going to see Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. And you see, as we are really looking to see how God is going to redeem mankind, we see that he's going to do it through a people, a nation. A nation that he can come and bring a redeemer through. All right, so like we saw that first flyover events, but now the second trip, we're going to be looking more so at people because God is much more interested in people like you and me than he's just in doing stuff and events. He's interested in relationships and and with people and interaction. That's what I love about God. So we're going to be seeing more so Genesis taking us from creation to a nation, all right? Now, you may have wondered at times, well, why did God choose Israel? Like, how did that all work? You know, was Israel the, the, the people that were impressing him the most? Was, was Israel the people that were doing better things or just having it? Get, well, there was no Israel, but God chose them, right? It wasn't that God chose a nation that he looks at and he goes, wow, look at those guys, man. I really can use them. I I could really work with those guys. There was no nation. He chose the nation. He does it by his grace, by his sovereignty, just as he does with each and every one of us, right? He gives us opportunity to partner with him, to work with him. And so God now, at the beginning, he selects a man, one man, to be the beginning of Israel. And this nation will be put together by God to be the means. And here's why God selected a nation. Not so that he could 
favor a nation above everybody else. It wasn't so that God could show special privilege to one nation. It was that God could choose a nation, have a people, have a group that he would bring the Messiah through. A nation that would be set apart for him. That's why he institutes the law, the priests, and, and, and this worship in the temple. It was to set a people apart so that they could remain pure so they could be a witness of God so they could bring the Messiah into the world and proclaim this great message of God's redemption for the world it's not that they were special it's that they were a chosen means and instrument for God to communicate to the whole of the world his great promise and that's what we're going to be seeing here in, in Genesis, we pick it up. It says in Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 6 to 8, For you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for himself, a special treasure above all the peoples on the face of the earth. The Lord did not set his love on you, nor choose you, because you are more in number than any other people. For you are the least of all peoples. But because the Lord loves you, because you keep the oath which he swore to your fathers, the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand. Um, brought you over the mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of bondage from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. So we're going to look here at the three main, you know, forefathers to this Israelite nation that God is working through, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And then we're going to look at Joseph and just the wonderful story and picture he is of this coming Messiah that the Bible is, is really all about. So chapter 12 begins, of course, with Abraham, who is the beginning of this nation. In fact, back it up to chapter 11, verse 27. And here's what it says, just to get a bit of, again, context and, and, and history of Abraham. Chapter 11, verse 27, this is the genealogy of Terah. Terah begot Abraham, that's Abraham, Nahor and Haran. Haran begot Lot. And Haran died before his father Terah in his native land in Ur of the Chaldeans. So that's in like, Babylon country. Then Abraham and Nahor took wives. The name of Abraham's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife, Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah, and the father of Iscah. But Sarai, his wife was barren. She had no child. All right? And then we move it down to chapter 12, verse 1. It says, Now the Lord had said to Abraham, Get out of your country, from your family, from your father's house, to a land that I will show you. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great, and you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse him who curses you. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So now Abraham is going to be this man that's very instrumental in the Lord, establishing, starting, beginning this nation, this people that he knows he's got plans to work through and do a, a good thing through and bringing the Messiah through, right? And again, Abraham's going to be this man that's really going to become this figure of faith, all right? That's going to be something that's really going to be instrumental in Abraham's life and, and at times tested in his faith and failing in his faith, but a man that's growing in his faith as well and becoming very fruitful in that faith. But here's the first thing he has to do. That's an exercise of faith. God says, go, right? Now, if that's me or you, what's usually our question or our response? Where? When? <laughs> what exactly? What do you mean? But God doesn't do any of that. He says, go. 
Get up and leave. Leave your father, your home, the things that you've been a part of, the things that you've been grounded in. I want you to leave those things. And that's really how it is for a lot of us, isn't it? When we come to Christ, he, there, there's to be kind of a, a leaving of former things to come and follow now the Lord Jesus, right? Take up your cross to, to deny yourself and to follow him, right? And so that's what Abraham is being called to do now. It tells us in Hebrews eleven eight by faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to the place which he would receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. Now for you wives, that's something you say about your husbands a lot of times, I'm sure, right? He went out not knowing where he's going. This guy does not know where he's going he's driving. I got to continually direct him. That's at least me and Michelle when I'm driving around. She's having to tell me where to go here. But that's Abraham here. He went out not knowing where he was going. Now, Abraham, like I said, he's going to be a man that's going to falter at times in his faith. He had many episodes where he did not trust God or believe God. Now, the biggest test for Abraham was in telling him that he was going to be the father of a great nation, right? I'm sure Abraham laughed at that a little bit because he's 70 years old at this time. Sarah's 60 years old. And we've already read there in chapter 11, verse 30, that she was barren. She had no children, right? And they're getting old. 70 years old, 60 years old. And now God's saying, hey, guess what, Abraham? I'm going to make of you a great nation. And Abraham, I'm sure, listen to that. Go, God, come on, get real. We don't even have a child. Let's start just at the beginning. Let's just start with a child. How about you just promise one kid, let alone a whole nation? But this is what Abraham has to receive and begin to move forward to in faith. And so his faith is going to be greatly tested. Now, these first three verses in chapter 12 are of utmost importance and significance because this really becomes the bedrock of the Bible here. This is known as the Abrahamic covenant and the whole of the bible is in a way just a detailing of the fulfillment of this covenant the whole of the bible is really just kind of the playing out of this abrahamic covenant now and notice the threefold promise in this covenant first of all that god's going to give him a land right okay get out of your country from your father's house to a land that i will show you secondly it's that god will make him a great nation i will make you a great nation i will bless you and make your name great and you shall be a blessing. Thirdly, this covenant is about causing him to be a blessing to the world. This nation be a blessing to the world. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse him who curses you. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. The anniversary. So everybody's going to be a recipient to some degree of this covenant or be affected by this covenant. So it's a threefold promise here in this covenant to break it down even more simpler it's about a land a nation a blessing if you need even easier reminder of this it's about the sod seed and salvation that's really the breakdown of this covenant here okay and notice who's making this promise right who's doing it it's just god god says repeatedly five times in those three verses i will not and when you abraham do this doesn't say that it's simply i will five times god's saying hey listen this is going to be a promise a covenant that's going to be about me 
keeping it and establishing it and it's have nothing to do with anybody else. This is, this is not a two-way covenant. This is a unilateral covenant. And so there are people today that confuse things and say, well, you know, uh, the land now really doesn't belong to Israel. They've kind of forfeited their rights to that. Now God sort of moved on. No, this is a promise that God's made that wasn't to be broken. It's not a conditional promise. It's an unconditional promise. And these things still are at work today, you see. Now, believing in God's ability to carry out these things is going to be very paramount, you know, in Abraham's life. So Abraham is going to have some tests, of course, to just sort of put this faith into practice. In fact, Abraham is going to be called the father of those who believe. um, And he's written about and referred to in that role elsewhere in scripture, right? Uh, Chapter, or sorry, in Romans, there's a, a chapter devoted to Abraham there in Galatians, two chapters devoted to Abraham about his faith. And in James, as well, another chapter there, it's devoted to just kind of that faith of Abraham. So he's going to be really referred to, known as, and, and again, this, this figure, this fatherhead of those who believe, who have faith. But in order for faith to be tested, to see if it works, it needs to work under pressure. So Abraham, again, he's going to be tested greatly. And as Abraham made his way, from Ur of the Chaldees to Canaan to the promised land, he does something important. Look at verse 8 with me at chapter 12. It says, And he moved from there to the mountain east of Bethel, and he pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai or I on the east. There he built an altar to the Lord and called on the name of the Lord. I love that. So it says that Abraham is between Bethel and I. Now Bethel means house of god and i means heap of ruins it's essentially where we often find ourselves isn't it even today you see we got heaven before us and the world behind us and we're kind of right in between we've got a great and blessed hope but we're also looking to leave further that place that once marked our lives you know kind of our past and and the things of the world behind with our eyes even more greatly on heaven and what's going to be the difference maker for what side we begin to really rest on whether it be that heap of ruins or that house of god it's going to be that place of worship before the lord are we worshiping god are we setting up an altar before the lord like abraham is doing here where he's making his his devotion to and about the lord our devotion to him will draw us closer towards bethel and distance ourselves more from i It's all in our relationship with God. And Abraham is establishing himself right now as he comes into, you know, this this land that God's given to this land of Cain and the promised land. He's establishing an altar and worship before God. And that's so good. Now, as Abraham is in Canaan, the land that God showed him, a famine hits now, all right? He gets hit with a famine. Doesn't sound very promising, right? God, I thought you were leading me to land, you know? What's this stuff about milk and honey and all this stuff? Now there's a famine that hits. But again, this is an opportunity for Abraham to respond and act in, in faith. But doesn't do so well here. There's going to be a lot of, uh, a, a, quite a learning curve here in Abraham's life. So what happens is he goes down to Egypt where he wants to get some food, but he begins to lie about his relationship with Sarah, his wife. He's thinking, you know, Sarah's a beautiful person. If I go in this land... You know, I'm, I'm going to be in jeopardy now. They're going to, they're going to, you know, look to knock me out because she's such a knockout herself. And so I'm going to be in trouble. So Sarah, just say that you're my sister, right? 
That's what Abraham begins to do. And they come in a, into the land and Pharaoh finds out about it. He's kind of taken Sarah into his home. Nothing's happened yet. But now he begins to get hit by plagues from the Lord. And he begins to question Abraham. What's going on? What have you done? So luckily, and by the grace of God, Pharaoh sends Abraham and Sarah away. Guess what? He could have made things a lot worse. But he says, you guys got to get out of here. And so they escape with their life. That's what we see at the end of chapter 12 there. And then moving to chapter 13, here we see now a bit of a dispute between Abraham's herdsmen and Lot's, all right? So remember, right at the beginning of, uh, of our study time, we looked at chapter 11, the end of chapter 11, we saw um, Lot's father, uh, Haran, that had passed away. So now Lot's basically adopted by Abraham and Sarah. And so he's hanging out with them. But now there begins to be a bit of a, a dispute between their workers, their herdsmen. So Abraham, he encourages Lot just to go ahead and look. And, and wherever you desire to go, Abraham, you, or sorry, Lot, you go and you set up your home there. And Abraham says, and I will go the opposite. If you go to the right, I'm going to go to the left. If you go to the left, I'll go to the right. Abraham being very gracious says, you go and find yourself a place. What does Lot do? He begins to look towards the place that's very fertile and lush, you know, place where the flesh really gravitates to. But it turns out it's Sodom, all right? So Lot begins to be a man that's kind of driven by those things. And we know how that turns out. Look at chapter 13, verse 13. And here's what we read. Chapter 13, verse 13. But the men of Sodom were exceedingly wicked and sinful against the Lord. And the Lord said to Abraham, after Lot had separated from him, lift your eyes now and look from the place where you are, northward, southward, eastward, and westward. For all the land which you see, I, I give to you and your descendants forever. And I will make your descendants as the dust of the earth, so that if a man could number the dust of the earth, then your descendants also could be numbered. Arise, walk in the land through its length and its width, for I give it to you. Not I will give it to you. God's basically saying, it's yours, Abraham. Just receive that inheritance. Then Abraham moved his tent and went and dwelt by the terebinth trees of Mamre, which are in Hebron, and built an altar there to the Lord. So here God is, is reconfirming that covenant that he had made with Abraham. He's going to do that several times, all right? He's going he's to confirm it, you know, basically saying, here's the land. He'll confirm it again by showing that this is going to be the, you know, the seed again, the, the, the child that you're going to have. He's going to confirm it again by, by saying you're going to be a blessing to all the world. So he's going to repeatedly confirm that covenant through each of those three parts of the covenant. Here he's saying, look at the land. And, and it's just all around 300,000 square miles, they say, is, is the land that God had given them to the land of Israel. They'd never inherited even half of that. They'd never taken it. It was a land that God said, here it is. I, not, I will give it to you. Not, you get in there and you fight for it. God says, go in there. Every place that you set your foot, I've given you that land. It's yours. Take it. But they fail to take it. And sadly, it's a, it's a great picture. You know what? I'm going to leave that because it's another great teaching point that we'll get to in Joshua, all right? Which will be just in a few weeks. So look at that. It's going to be great. So we'll leave that for then. Chapter 14. Battle breaks out now in chapter 14, all right? Five kings versus four kings. This is the first battle royal that's taking place right now. And so there's a king 
uh, Keterleomer, which was a king over Elam or present-day Persia or Iran. And he had gone and captured in chapter 14 various ground in the area adjacent to the Dead Sea. But there were five kings that had rebelled against him. And so what Keterleomer does is he goes and he grabs three other kings to kind of partner with him to go up against these other guys and to stop this rebellion. And they kind of defeat them. And they begin to gather people as prisoners of war. One of them being Lot. But when Abraham heard of it, what Abraham does is he assembles his men. And notice that Abraham at this point now, you're seeing this man becoming very wealthy. He's becoming very established. Blessed are the Lord, just as God said he would. So check out verse 14 of chapter 14. Now when Abraham heard that his brother was taken captive or his, his um, nephew Lot, he armed his 318 trained servants who were born in his own house and went in pursuit as far as Dan. So Abraham's being pretty established right now with the men that God is just blessing him with. So he goes against this army and he goes and defeats them. Look at verse 18, chapter 14, verse 18. Well, this leads us up to a very interesting scene as he goes and he captures Lot back. And then we read in verse 18, Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was the priest of God most high, and he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abraham, a God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And he, Abraham, gave him a tithe of all. So this is a very significant scene that's going on here right now that one that we can quickly just kind of overlook if we're not careful but here's this king of salem that comes to meet abraham and his name is melchizedek now it's an obscure situation that can quickly be overlooked like i said but this melchizedek comes up again in other places in the bible it says in psalm 110 verse 4 the lord has sworn and will not relent you are a priest forever according to the order of melchizedek and then in chapter, or sorry, in Hebrews chapter 7, and a couple of chapters in Hebrews, we begin to hear more about this man, Melchizedek. There's, there's something important about this man. It says there in Hebrews 7, For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, to whom also Abraham gave a tenth part of all, first being translated king of righteousness, and then also king of Salem, meaning king of peace, without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like the Son of God, he remains a priest continually. Now that's some interesting stuff there. He's a king and a priest. Listen, kings never were priests, couldn't be priests. Priests were never to be kings. These offices were never to intertwine. But here we see Melchizedek being a king priest and being a priest or a king to one God. To God most high. Very interesting. Now his name Melchizedek means king of righteousness. And it says he's the king of Salem. Salem sounds like another city name that we reference. Jerusalem. Jerusalem. Salem means peace. So here's this man coming on the scene. Who's the king of righteousness. And he's the king of what would later be known as Jerusalem. City of peace. King of righteousness, king of peace. Sounds an awful lot like Jesus Christ, right? Now, some have concluded that because of that, and what we read in Hebrews, that there's neither 
beginning of days nor end of life. There's no genealogy without mother or, or any kind of genealogy. There's many that have precluded that, that this must be a, a Christophany. Uh, a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus Christ. Which we will see throughout Genesis. Now whether or not this is the case here with Melchizedek, that's very debatable. All right, And I'll leave it with you guys to figure that out on your own. All right. Many believe that he was a legitimate, true king over Salem that practiced in that office of priest towards God, the one true God. And he was simply a foreshadowing of the work of Jesus because we know Jesus comes, right, to bring us righteousness. And it's only when we, and, and the order is so good here, Melchizedek, Hebrews, says he's a king of righteousness and the king of peace. And the order is so important because until we come and experience and know the righteousness of Jesus Christ and through Jesus Christ uh, that we can't have in and of ourselves, we're not going to know peace. But when we come in and apply now, clothe ourselves in the righteousness of Christ, guess what? We get to experience the blessed peace of God that we won't experience otherwise. And so Melchizedek at best is a foreshadowing, a picture of Jesus Christ. And many will say, we believe maybe that this is a, a Christophany pre-incarnate appearance of Christ. I'll leave that with you. But that's an interesting scene that goes on. And notice what he brings up with them. It's bread and wine. Well, what does that remind you of? Communion. It's that time of remembering what Jesus indeed has done for us. The bread and the wine, his body and his blood. And so Abraham gives a tenth now, a tithe. It's a tenth. Of all that he had. And Abraham we see now. He's a rich guy. He's got a lot of wealth. He's just defeated some people. And delivered Lot. And, and, and no doubt some booty. And so now he's got a lot. And he's giving it over to Abraham. You see. It's always. Goes from the lesser to the greater. In a giving and a gift. Action like this. It never goes from the greater to the lesser. Abraham was seen as. For many just you know. The greatest of, of the Hebrew people. The father of the nation. But yet he's the one giving over to this Melchizedek. So there's something very significant and important about this man. Well, chapter 15. In this chapter, God once more now confirms his covenant with Abraham. Must keep reminding him. Just stop him, Abraham, I won't lose you now. Just remember, we got some good stuff in store here now. Don't doubt, don't worry. I got this together. And he confirms this covenant with him again. But he has to do so because Abe's been growing in doubt as to whether or not God can actually bring him a child. Right? It, it says there in verse 2, or sorry, verse. let's just start in verse 1 of chapter 15. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abraham in a vision saying, do not be afraid, Abraham. Why, why do you need to say that? Because he's afraid. You don't have to say to somebody that's not afraid, don't be afraid. God recognizes Abraham's struggling through some stuff here. So he says, do not be afraid. I am your shield, your exceedingly great reward. But Abraham said, Lord God, what will you give me? Seeing I go childless and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. Abraham senior saying, this is all I got. Lord, just take this guy because it's very doubtful that Sarah or I are going to ever have children. We're not getting any younger here, God. This isn't helping you. Just take this 
servant of ours and let him be the heir now. Let him be the one, right? But what does God do? He takes Abraham out. He says, look up in the sky. Have you ever been somewhere where you can just look up in the sky in the night where you were just so far away from any kind of lights from cities or homes and it's just like, boom! Like, you, you're like, I never realized the sky at night could look like that. Anybody, anybody feel like, isn't that great? I remember when I've been to Africa and standing out just, you know, where there's like literally like power is just shut off. There is nothing that's lit up. Nothing's going on. And you look up and I remember standing there looking up in the sky going, this is absolutely unbelievable. Never witnessed anything like that. You know, just illumination. Well, God calls Abraham to come out. And man, back then in this day, of course, oh man, you're seeing that sky just popping in the night, right? He brings Abraham out. Look at the stars in the sky. Abraham, can't count all those. Guess what? Just like you see there, so shall your descendants be. It's going to be so numerous, Abraham. They are just going to be growing, popping. You are just going to be incredibly blessed at what is going to happen. So, God reveals this to him, and then notice there what we see in verse 6. And he, Abraham, believed in the Lord, and he accounted it to him for righteousness. And, and that is the framework for us receiving the salvation God has for us. Believing and now receiving it. Abraham believed God, and then it was accounted it was put into his account as righteous. He believed, and now righteousness was put into his account. And that's how it is for us. All God is saying, just believe in the work of Jesus Christ for you. Believe in, in, the, in the forgiveness of sin that he's offered you. Believe that, and now, boom, into your account. Righteousness, salvation, eternal life. A new birth certificate, child of God. That's what God does, and it's simple. And Abraham, like I said, becomes that, that figure of faith, the father of those who believe. He sets up the, the example, the model, the principle. Believe, and righteousness is accounted into your account. And so to confirm this once again with Abraham, God has him take some sacrifices now in chapter 15. This is important. Chapter 15, take... take um, Bring me a three-year-old heifer, verse 9, a three-year-old female goat, a three-year-old ram, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. Then he brought all these to him and cut them in two down in the middle and placed each piece opposite each other, but he did not cut the birds in two. So this was a very um, common way of forming a covenant between two parties. They would bring their sacrifices, they would cut those sacrifices, and then just kind of lay them aside on opposite sides of each other. And then the two people that were making that covenant with each other, they would walk through those hand in hand between those sacrifices and they would, they would recite the terms of their agreement, basically. And it was a way of just saying, we are confirming this now in this oath, in this covenant. And basically what we're determining is that if anybody breaks any of these requirements or terms of our covenant, just like what we see in these sacrifices, that's what you can expect for yourself. That's kind of what it's saying. That's what they would do, you see? And so God has Abraham set this up. But now Abraham is waiting. Okay, well, you want to make a covenant? Well, we need two of us 
So Abraham's just kind of sitting there twiddling his thumbs, going, how does this work now, God? What, what do we do? And Abraham gets tired, and he falls asleep. And he wakes up, and he kind of groggy, sees this smoking, smoldering between the sacrifices. And he realizes something's happened. Yeah, God has gone through, and he's burned those up. You see, what's happening is God is the one that's making the covenant with Abraham, not Abraham. Five times, chapter 12, verse 1 to 3, I will. I will do this, Abraham, not you. I'm not looking to you. I'm not, I'm not needing you. I will do this. So right there again in chapter 15, at the end, he makes this covenant, and he goes through, and he burns it up, and he says, Abraham, this is a covenant that I am establishing, and I'm going to carry out, and I'm going to bring it through to fruition. Well, chapter 16 Sarah and Abraham still aren't convinced (laughs) that God can supply a child to start this great nation. So they decide to help God out, right? After all, God helps those who help themselves, right? How many people have, listen, no shame here tonight. How many people at one point in life thought that was a biblical verse right there? All right. No problem because there's many that have thought that's in the Bible, right? God helps those who help themselves. We quote it like it's biblical and many people have thought that. Challenge people. They're like, yeah, that's in the Bible. Right along there with, you know, okay, no, there's other things that people have that are like, that's gotta be biblical. It's not, but that's not in the Bible. And in fact, more so what we see in the Bible is that God helps the helpless. God helps the downtrodden, the brokenhearted, the hurting, the people that are in need. Those that are calling out to God saying, I, I can't do this. I can't be of any help. Lord, I need you. But yet, chapter 16 here, Abraham and Sarah are looking at their situation going, once again, we're not getting any younger. And you know what? I think God needs us. I think God needs our help. So what does Sarah do? Abraham? I got a maidservant here, all right? I got a maidservant, Hagar. Abraham, have a child with her. And we'll adopt that child as ours. That will become our child. That will be the one, the promised child that God can start this nation through. Sounds like a foolproof plan. Let's do it. And that was, again, a a common practice to do among people, right? If you got a maidservant, all right, you can do that. And so... Abraham and and, and Hagar have a child. And out pops an Ishmael. Sometimes when we try and help God, we just make more of a mess of things, don't we? Right? A mess that is still being felt today by this work of the flesh, Ishmael. Now Sarah herself didn't like the end result of this action. And she begins to deal harshly with Hagar and had her thrown out. But notice there in chapter 18, verse 7. Um, sorry, 16, verse 7. Chapter 16, verse 7. Look at what we read there. Now the angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, by the spring on the way to Shur. And he said, Hagar, Sarai's made where have you come from? Where are you going? She said, I'm fleeing from the presence of my mistress, Sarai. The angel of the Lord comes and meets her in a time of need. Now, this is the first mention of the angel of the Lord. This is an N 
angel of the Lord. And if you've got a New King James Bible like mine, you'll see that angel is capitalized. This is the angel of the Lord. And we'll see that reference in that term elsewhere in Scripture. And this is what we do, in fact, believe to be a Christophany, a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus Christ in the Old Testament. And oftentimes we'll be confronted with the angel of the Lord who comes onto the scene, acting with might and power. But here he comes acting in grace and compassion to a woman in need. And it's so good because this is exactly what our Savior does. He comes and he finds those who are discouraged, broken, and hurting. And he comes with encouragement. We see the same thing happening in John chapter 4 when he comes to another woman at the well, just as Hagar, sitting by a spring of water in the wilderness. He comes to a woman at the well who's, who's been ostracized, who's been discouraged, who's been put out. And he comes to pick up and restore the outcasts. He comes with love and compassion. And I think it's so wonderful to see this first mention of an angel of the Lord. Not coming in wrath and power and, and, and fury, but coming in love and grace and compassion for the outcast, for the hurting. It's exactly what our Savior Jesus does. I'm so glad for that. Chapter 17 the sign of the covenant is now given. All right. Covenant's been established. He's confirmed it and he will still will elsewhere. But now he says, let's give a sign for that. And the sign being circumcision. Now, people, sadly, as time went on, began to kind of use circumcision as a real sort of badge of honor. Like, I'm circumcised. I'm one of the circumcised. I'm in a special relationship with Yahweh. And so they began to use this as kind of a, uh, a religious sort of arrogance and air that they would carry over other people. But remember what God ultimately just wanted to do. He wanted to give them a, a sign of what he's going to do and establish that. But really, this was to be a whole lot more than just an outward thing. This is going to speak of something internal. It says in Romans 2.29... But he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that of the heart, in the spirit, not in the letter, whose praise is not from men, but from God. God will himself say that in Deuteronomy, I believe it is. So this is, this is not to be just some kind of outward you know, work of the flesh. This is something I wanted to do from the heart, from the inside out. He desires to transform people inwardly, not just externally. So Abraham is still struggling with wondering how God is going to pull everything off. But God, once again, lets Abraham know that he's going to provide for him. Ishmael isn't going to be the inheritor of the covenant, but Isaac will be. Turn to Genesis 17. Look at verse 18. Genesis 17, verse 18. And Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. Then God said, No. No, Sarah, your wife shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him for an everlasting covenant and with his descendants after him. So chapter 18. Three men come and visit Abraham now. One of them being the Lord. All right. Let's look at Genesis 18 verse 9. 
Then they said to him, these three men, where is Sarah, your wife? So he said, here in the tent. And he said, I will certainly return to you according to the time of life. And behold, Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. And Sarah was listening in the tent door, which was behind him. Now, Abraham and Sarah were old, well advanced in age. And Sarah had passed the age of childbearing. Therefore, Sarah laughed within herself, saying, after I've grown old, shall I have pleasure, my Lord, being old also? <laughs> Come on. I mean, I'm old, but if you said Abraham, is what she's saying. Look at him. He's got 10 years on me, right? There's no way. And the Lord said to Abraham, why did Sarah laugh? Saying, shall I surely bear a child since I'm old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? Oh, how we need to remind ourselves of that tonight. If you don't have that underlined, underline it, circle it, put a highlighter over it. I don't know what you want to do, tattoo it, but do something. Because you need to know this. Is anything too hard for the Lord? And at the appointed time, I will return to you according to the time of life. And Sarah shall have a son. But Sarah denied it. She hears all this. She's like, no, what are you talking about? I didn't laugh. And he said, no, you did. You laughed. Yep, we heard it. We know. I'm the Lord. I know these things, all right? So this is kind of what is being said there. It's kind of a comical situation as Sarah is trying to deny these things. So there in chapter 18, again, these men come, two of them angels, one of them being the, the Lord Jesus again, pre-incarnate. They are just reminding them of this promise. Now, it's too hard for the Lord. Stop fearing. Stop fretting. Stop trying to make things happen in yourself. We're going to do this. Trust us. Live by faith here. Now, at the end of chapter 18, Abraham goes in to intercede for Sodom because these men also say Sodom and Gomorrah got to be destroyed. They just become so wicked and you know the, the scene there that, that homosexuality was running rampant. Every kind of sexual sin and, and, and vice was there. It was just becoming very, very vile and, and, and sinful. And so God says, I, I, I need to, judgment is here. But Abraham begins to intercede knowing that Lot, remember, had moved there. He begins to intercede. And so Abraham says, listen, if there's 50 righteous, will you still judge it? God says, well, no, okay, if there's 50 righteous, I won't do it. Abraham's thinking, oh, man, I shouldn't have started so high. <laughs> I just need to say, you know, I just need to say a lot, man. I, I started too high. How about 40, Lord? If there's 40 righteous, no, I'll spare it. I won't judge the, you know, the righteous with the, the wicked. How about 30, Lord? Keeps going. Lord's like, yeah, 30. And Abraham's going, man, I, I better not stop now. How about 20? Is 20, 10? God says, yes. If there's 10 righteous there, I will, for their sakes, spare the city. And so he begins to send the angels in to basically have a little rescue mission and bring Lot and his men out. He's going to bring them out so that he can go through with judging that city. And so that's what happens. You know the scene? He said, don't look back. Lot's wife kind of looked back longingly, turns into a pillar of salt. And what a, a lesson that is for us that we're not those that are kind of looking back gazingly, lovingly, affectionately on the former things that we've left as we started off. Abraham being told, leave your country. Abraham was living, you see, in an idol country. They were sacrificing or, or worshiping idols. God says, leave it. And how we too need to leave the world behind and say, I don't want to be looking any longer with a, a, a loving, affectionate gaze upon the world. I don't want to turn back. I want to keep my hand on the plow. I'm going to keep my eyes on Jesus. 
and run that race that's set before me. That's the desire that we need to have. So chapter 19, we see um, just again that, that destruction of, of Sodom and Gomorrah. Chapter, um, end of chapter 19, we see Lot's descendants. Now, because Lot foolishly chose a place of the flesh, he's not, God's kind of reaping the consequences of that now. Because he moves out of the city, he, he, he leaves it, his wife turns into pillar of salt, now he's there with just his two daughters, and the, and the daughters are kind of thinking, this is it. It's just us and, and Lot. What are we going to do? We're going to... We, and so they get him drunk and they have children. And so Lot fathers two children now. He fathers Moab and Ben-Ami. It's the Moabites and the Ammonites. And they're going to be a thorn in the side of Israel. Chapter 20. Abraham and Abimelech meet up. Abimelech is in um, Gerar there in chapter... Chapter 20. And again, Abraham begins to enter into a bit of a lie. He's still, he's still got this doubt going on in him. He comes into new territory and he's again worried about his wife. And he falls in that same lie. And again, Abimelech suffers through that. They become barren in their house and, and they're wondering what's going on. Finally, the truth comes out. And he's like, Abraham, you got to get out of here. What are you doing? Abraham was still learning to trust God in all these things. So here's the thing. Now that Sarah is 90 years old, that's the age that she's at now, Abraham is 100 years old. Guess what? Now that she's 90 and he's 100, now the conditions are perfect for God to bring about this great plan that he's had all along. Too easy before when she's only 60 and he's 70. Now I want this to be something special. I want this to be a work of promise i want this to be miraculous now this is the time when conditions are good for god to do a work that he will get all the credit and glory for so in chapter 21 we're introduced to isaac now as we move to our next man from abraham to isaac look at chapter 21 verse 1 and the lord visited sarah as he had said and the lord did for sarah as he had spoken for Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age at the set time of which God had spoken to him. And Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah bore to him, Isaac. Then Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old, as God had commanded him. Now Abraham was 100 years old when his son Isaac was born to him. And Sarah said, God has made me laugh and all who hear will laugh with me. She also said, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? For I've borne him a son in his old age. How cool is that? Who's having the last laugh now, right? Isaac's name literally means laughter. Remember back there in chapter, oh, what was it? Chapter 17, um, chapter 18. Sarah's hearing this word from these three visitors that they're going to have a child. She's laughing. <laughs> And not laughing happily, laughing mockingly. Come on, how's this going to happen? That's ridiculous. Oh my God, these guys are out of their minds. And now she bears a child that she's told, his name's going to be Isaac. And it's going to be a reminder for you <laughs> of how you doubted, how you mocked, how you laughed. But it's not going to be a, a reminder 
constantly. This is going to be, I think, just a reminder of the joy that we can have in Jesus. When we trust him to do the work, when we see him bring life into situations that we thought otherwise could not come. And we just rejoice and we're filled with joy to see what God's doing. And so they have this child, Isaac. And she can rejoice in the fact that indeed God is a big God and he does indeed do the impossible. Now check out a couple things here in chapter 22 because this is an interesting turn of events now. Because God in chapter 22, and I love this chapter in the Bible, God is going to call Abraham to do something that seems completely wrong. Completely just out of the ordinary or inconsistent with what God wants to do. He tells Abraham in chapter 22, well, let's read it, verse 1. Now, it came to pass after these things, and, and by after these things, we're talking perhaps about 25 years after Isaac is born. Up to maybe more than that even. A, a long while has passed since Isaac has been born. After these things, that God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, he said, here I am. Then he said, take now your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love. And go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning and saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him and Isaac his son. And he split the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. Then on the third day, Abraham lifted his eyes and saw the place afar off. Unbelievable. Take your son. You know the one that I said I'm going to make a muddy nation out of? The one that you thought will never come? Let's take him out now. It makes no sense. You go, but Lord, this is the guy that you're going to do the nation thing out of. This is the guy that Genesis 12 is going to be fulfilled through. We take him out. Now there's even a greater amount of time. Now you thought it was a miracle to have a child at 100. Now I'm 125, 130. Now, I mean, I know that God can do all things, but this one seems like maybe that might be a little too much for you, God. How are we going to have another? How are we going to find a replacement for Isaac? But take him. And what do we see Abraham doing? Responding in faith and doing it. But check out a couple things here. What happens? It says there in verse 2, take now your son, your only son, Isaac. Your only son. But wait a second. Didn't Abraham have two sons? It is Ishmael. But you see, Ishmael was a work, a product of the flesh. And God just doesn't recognize the work of the flesh. Take now your son, your only son. It's just Isaac. Oh, God had a blessing for Ishmael but he's not recognized as anything to do with the covenant that God has planned. How often have we put together a work of the flesh and said, God, here, take it. We need you to use this. And it's just been a work of the flesh. It hasn't been a work of the Lord. God doesn't honor or see or use a work of the flesh. He doesn't recognize that. Ishmael is not part of the equation here. And notice he says, take now your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love. 
You know, this is the first mention of the word love in the Bible. And it's very interestingly used here between the relationship of a father and a son. The first time we see a picture like that in the New Testament is at the baptism of Jesus Christ in Matthew chapter 3, verse 17, where God says, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. God has sent a son to this world to carry out an important mission that would, of course, include him being offered up as a sacrifice. And God is allowing Abraham not just to be tested, but to experience this fellowship of suffering, to experience something on a greater level that none of us would ever experience, where he would begin to understand a little bit the heart of our father and giving up a son. And there's something strengthening, there's something binding that takes place when we walk in that fellowship of suffering with one another. And Abraham is being asked to do that here. Take now your son, your only son, whom you love, to the land of Moriah. This is in reference to the mountain range where Jerusalem is situated. It's that this place that Abraham will take his son Isaac to be sacrificed on is the very place that Jesus hung on a cross there on Mount Moriah. The very same place. And it's on the third day we read there in verse 4. On the third day. So Abraham has been traveling with Isaac. With this news. Take him to Mount Moriah. And use him as a burnt offering. For three days he's been walking. As though Isaac is dead in his mind. Dead for three days. Look at chapter 5, or sorry, chapter 22, verse 5. And Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey, the lad, and I will go yonder and worship, and we will come back to you. We will come back to you. Isn't that what Jesus said to his disciples? Oh yeah, I must go to Jerusalem, I must suffer, I must die. Three days, I'll be in the grave, but I'm going to rise again. I will come back to you. Abraham had this belief, had this insight, had this understanding, had this faith. As Hebrews tells us that God could even raise him up from the dead if need be. So Abraham's faith is being tested, but it's growing and it's becoming fruitful. To where he says, three days. We're going up there, but we'll come back to you. I love that. Now, we know the scene, we know the situation here in chapter 22 that, that Abraham takes him up. He's got Isaac there. And, and the picture that we often have is Isaac is just a little boy. You know, oh, dad, this is fun. This is so cool. Can I light the fire, dad? Can I? But again, this could be 25, 30 years. In other words, Isaac's a man. And his dad is old. And what do we gather from that? That Isaac is going willingly. Abraham's not wrestling him down, tying him up, and Isaac's just this innocent kid going, oh, Dad, this is really fun. Can I do this to you next? This is really neat. Isaac's a man knowing, hey, Dad, this doesn't seem right. He's carrying the wood. He's not asking, we've got the wood, we've got it, but where's the, where's the sacrifice? Abraham puts him down, and he's got the knife ready to go Isaac is willingly laying his life down. Now, when Isaac says, where's the sacrifice? 
what, is, what does Abraham say? And I love this. He says there, um, oh boy, and I got to find it. Um, verse 8, yeah, my son God will provide for himself the lamb for burnt offering. So the two of them went together. And in the original language, that word for is not there. In other words, it's as though Abraham is saying, God will provide himself the lamb for burnt offering. That's what he did through Jesus, our, our Passover lamb. Gave himself willingly, laid his life down for us. And eventually when he's ready to thrust that knife down, the angel stops him. And there he hears that ram in the thickets. It's not a lamb. Because in this picture, it's pointing to the one perfect lamb of God that will lay his life down. So there's no lamb provided here, it's a ram. Because Jesus Christ will be that lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. Well, chapter 23, in this chapter we see, or sorry, at, at this point now, from the end of that scene, we don't hear or see Isaac again now till the end of chapter 24. And, th- and this is interesting because with Isaac especially, we're going to really see a lot of neat types and pictures of God, uh, of Jesus. And, and the Bible is full of these pictures. It's such a neat thing. There was a little boy that was, you know, working in his Sunday school class and they're all drawing neat little things and the teacher comes up behind and says, hey, what are you drawing there? He says, I'm drawing a picture of God. And the teacher says, well, that's really interesting there, Johnny, but nobody knows what God looks like. Johnny just looked at her and said, oh, they will in a minute. And he just keeps drawing. Pictures are great. I love pictures. And I love that God has placed many Pictures are what we call types. You know, the typology of the Bible. Types are pictures. They're foreshadowings of what is to come. And many pictures we have here in Genesis of the work of Jesus Christ. We've already seen some of them here with Isaac and Abraham and the relationship there. But Isaac isn't going to be seen now again till the end of chapter 24. Why? Well, because when Jesus died and rose again, as we kind of see pictured here in the story of chapter 22, he's ascended to heaven, all right? And so what's happening when Jesus ascended to heaven, the Holy Spirit is poured out onto the world and the Holy Spirit is gathering a bride for Christ. So as we move into chapter 23, we see now Sarah's death and Sarah stands as a picture of Israel. All right. Now, once Jesus died, what happened is that Israel was kind of placed aside to focus on a Gentile bride. Israel not replaced. Israel not left forever. No, God still worked through them and, and, and praise the Lord in God's economy and grace. Many Jews are still being saved and, and to this day, but there's coming a time when he's going to work again with them. But there comes this time where at his ascension, he goes to heaven, the Holy Spirit is poured out in the world and now there's this inclusion of a Gentile bride. And so as we move from chapter 23, Sarah dies, the, the, the picture of Israel put aside. Now in chapter 24, look at what we read there in verse one. Now Abraham was old, well advanced in age and the Lord had blessed Abraham in all things. So Abraham said to the oldest servant of his house who ruled over all that he had, please put your hand under my thigh and I will make you swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and the God of the earth that you will not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I dwell, but you shall go to my country and to my family and take a wife for my son Isaac. So what is the father saying? Go 
to the servant, go and gather a bride for my son Isaac. All right? Not, not in this land, but in a foreign land. In a foreign land. Go grab a Gentile bride for my son. Now, interestingly, the servant is not mentioned. We don't, we don't know who this servant is. He's kind of an anonymous servant. And isn't that fitting? Because doesn't the Holy Spirit come onto the scene to testify of Christ? The Holy Spirit doesn't work where he's drawing attention to himself, but rather that he might magnify Jesus. John chapter 15, verse 26 says that very clearly. It's to testify of Christ. But in doing some digging around, it's very likely that this servant, we've already mentioned him in chapter one of those we've already mentioned tonight. The servant of Abraham was Eliezer. Do you know what Eliezer means? God, my helper. God, my help. The Holy Spirit, parakletos, the, the Holy Spirit referred to as the helper who comes alongside. And now Eliezer meaning God, my help. How cool is that? That the servant is going out into a foreign land to gather a Gentile bride for this one Isaac, who becomes this picture of Christ. Isaac there, it, just in chapter 21, born. It's this miraculous birth. It's kind of a, a picture, a type of the incarnation. It was a promised child. His name was given before he was born, just as it was for Jesus. Miraculous birth. There's so many similarities between Isaac and Jesus. And now he pictures this sacrifice that he makes. And now he kind of is off the scene while the servant is going out to gather a bride for this son. How neat this is. Chapter 25. Abraham gets remarried to Keturah. Sarah's died. So Abraham marries again. And amazingly, got more kids coming. How's he do it? I don't know. My goodness. Something in that water back then, I guess. But chapter 25, verse 7 to 11, we see that Abraham dies. But Isaac is the one that is blessed and is carrying on the covenantal relationship or the covenantal promise, I should say, which the Lord established there. Verse 11 of chapter 25. Um, let's see. Yeah, and it came to pass after the death of Abraham that God blessed his son Isaac and Isaac dwelt at Beer. Lahai Roy. So um, I didn't mention just that that, you know, in chapter 24, that servant goes and gets a bride now. Rebecca is brought to meet Isaac and then they enter into this relationship, right? Okay, such a sweet thing. That's what, what Jesus desires from us for us to just be in relationship with him and, and allowing the Holy Spirit just to draw us and keep pointing us to Jesus and to be in a greater and deeper relationship with him. So, um, that was the end of chapter 24. Now, again, fast-forwarding a little bit here. We see Isaac is the one being blessed. And then Isaac, um, you know, for him to continue on this promise and this covenant, well, he needs to have a child. He needs to have kids. But like Sarah, Rebecca is also barren. So Isaac prays for her. Um, Let's see. That was in, yeah, verse 21. Now Isaac pleaded with the Lord for his wife. Verse 21 of chapter 25. Because she was barren and the Lord granted his plea and Rebekah his wife 
conceived. So very neat. And I'm so thankful that we have, like in Isaac, we have a Savior who is interceding for us. When we might feel at times like we are weak or we are walking in barrenness and we're just saying, Lord, I need that fresh touch from you. We have one that is indeed interceding for us. And he knows our weakness. And he sympathizes with us. And he's there on our behalf praying. Just as Isaac turns, the Lord prays for his bride here. What a neat thing. Well, it's chapter 25. Verse 21 and 28, God lets Isaac and Rebekah know that there's two nations in her womb and gives a very interesting prophecy that the older shall serve the younger. And that would definitely be an odd occurrence in that day, especially when you see the personalities of these two, right? So in chapter 25, we see Isaac is really favoring the outdoorsman character of Esau. Esau and Jacob are born to Rebekah and Isaac, all right? They're twins. Um, Esau comes out first and as, as Jacob's born, he's like grabbing, you know, the heel of Esau. So we really begin to see the character of Jacob even in that. Esau meant hairy. Jacob meant supplanter or, you know, this deceiver in a sense. That was what the names meant there. Now, that prophecy was given to them in verse 23 of chapter 25. Um, let's see. Yeah, verse 23 of chapter 25, two nations are in your womb. Two people shall be separated from your body. One people shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. So now we see that these two are, are born, and um, yeah, we begin to see these different characters. Jacob's a mild man, dwelling in tents. He's having tea parties with mom. And Isaac is just loving his son Esau, who's out there hunting game and bringing back delicious meat for Isaac. So he's very different personalities, right? Esau born first, and no doubt, seeming like the one, no duh, that he's the guy that's going to take over, you know, the blessing, the birthright. He's the guy that's going to lead our family into the future, right? But God's given this prophecy now. And we see that Esau comes back, from hunting very hungry. And Jacob's been in the kitchen, of course, you know, got the apron on, he's making up a nice stew. Esau comes in, he's like, oh man, I would love some of that. And they strike up a bit of a deal, why don't you sell your birthright to me? And Esau did it. He despised his birthright. And that chapter kind of closes by emphasizing Esau's treatment of his birthright rather than Jacob's treatment of his brother. And you go, man, these guys were both, were both wrong. But Esau didn't have any appreciation for this. And in so doing, it's partly fulfilling that, that prophecy that we see in verse 23. And Esau's descendants now, the Edomites, they become bitter foes of Israel. There's a whole book in the Bible, the book of Obadiah, that's devoted solely to that nation of the Edomites and their dis, basically their judgment, all right? Now, chapter 26, we move into really now focus on the life of Jacob. As, as Isaac begins a little bit more to fade off the scene and, and the focus becoming on Jacob now. Chapter 26, uh, we see Isaac that falls into the same lack of faith as Abraham did when he lies to Abimelech about his wife Rebekah, just like Abraham and Sarah did to the same man. It's interesting how we as parents need to really be careful how we're living, the things that we're doing, because we got kids that are watching, and it's interesting that Isaac does the exact same thing that his father had done, whether he heard the story or whatever it was. Then in chapter 27, we see Jacob living up to that name 
of supplanter or heel catcher. That's what Jacob meant. You know, heel catcher, supplanter, that deceiver. He's taking Esau's blessing away from him. But this is not a man overriding God's will. This is really the sovereignty of God at work in carrying out his purpose. He's already prophesied that the older shall serve the younger. And now God is in his sovereignty working this all out. Esau has already sold away his birthright. He was a man of the flesh that didn't really have any interest in these things. Look at what we see in Hebrews 12, verse 16 to 17. Lest there be any fornicator or profane person like Esau, who for one morsel of food sold his birthright. For you know that afterward, when he wanted to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no place for repentance, though he sought it diligently with tears. It wasn't that he couldn't find repentance, that he didn't really desire it or walk in it. He wasn't saddled with birthright. He wanted the blessing without the birthright, right? Many today are in that same category where they're seeking the blessing in life. They want the Lord to give them this blessing in life, but they don't want to enter into this birthright or to be born again, to experience this new life in Christ. They, they want the blessing without the strings attached. But the blessings come as we experience life as children of God, as we enter into this birthright, as we enter into the life that Christ has for us, that's when the blessings flow. Esau wanted the one without the other. Well, chapter 28, Jacob now is told to go to Padanaram, where his uncle Laban was. That's where he was living. And there, Jacob would go and find a wife. But an interesting thing happens along the way. He comes to a place at night. He sets up some stones for a pillow. And he starts dreaming. Look at Genesis 28, verse 12. Then he dreamed, and behold, a ladder was set up on the earth, and its top reached to heaven, and there the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. So in this dream, God repeats now the covenant to Jacob, just as he did to Isaac and originally with Abraham. This covenant is being passed down, repeated, and confirmed with each of these patriarchs now of Israel. Confirmed to Abraham, then it's confirmed to Isaac, now it's confirmed to Jacob here in the stream. So verses 13 on down to, to verse 15 are all kind of confirming that covenant. And look at verse 15. It says, Behold, I'm with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I've done what I've spoken to you. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, how awesome is this place? This is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. Then Jacob rose early in the morning and took the stone that he had put at his head, set it up as a pillar, and poured oil on top of it. And he called the name of that place Bethel, but the name of that city had been Luz previously. So Jacob was on the run. And by the way, if anybody's got kids in Calvary Kids Club, you'll need to just slip out and kind of go and grab them. And you're welcome to come back in and finish up with us. But Jacob was on the run. He's sleeping on the rocks when finally he realized God is with him. And so what does he do? He took the rocks and he built an altar now and worshiped God there. The very thing that brought discomfort, he now used to worship God with. Through your rocky times, we need to learn, like Jacob, to turn that into an opportunity to worship God. Because, as Jacob realized, God is with me. God is here. This place was previously called Luz, meaning separation. But now he calls it Bethel, which we've already seen means house of God. 
There was this separation. There was this place where he felt, I'm all alone. I'm afraid to confront my brother Esau. I'm on the run. I'm going to land I don't know. There's separation. There's nothing. He's, he's empty. He's seeping on rocks. And now he begins to see this vision of the opening to God. And he begins to turn those rocks into an altar and a place of worship. Where he begins to realize this was one separation. But now it's going to be the house of God. A place of worship. If you feel like God is nowhere in your life. Start to worship. Just take that W in there and move it over. And you'll see that God is now here. And that's what happens as we begin to worship the Lord. As we begin to set our eyes on the Lord. At one point you're thinking God where are you? God's nowhere. And we set our gaze on God and we realize, God, you're here. You're right with me. We have access to the very throne of God. How good that is. Chapters 29 to 30. Jacob now makes it to Laban's, right, his uncle. And he meets his two daughters, Rachel and Leah. Now, Jacob is head over heels in love with Rachel, Now, it says in chapter 29, verse 17, that Leah's eyes were delicate, but Rachel was beautiful of form and appearance. Now, that idea that her eyes were delicate, we look at that and go, oh, it's been beautiful to see these little, you know, doe eyes. It's been so nice. No, it means that they were weak. In other words, Leah maybe was cross-eyed. Maybe she's got a lazy eye. Maybe she's got pus coming out of one eye. And Jacob's like, oh, my goodness. No, thank you. Rachel, all right. I'm looking at you, right? I mean, this was no... It's a no deal there, right? Jacob's like, no, all right. We're cutting that one off there. She's delicate of eye. She's weak eye. We don't know exactly what that meant. But boom, he was head over heels with Rachel. And it says there in verse 18, now Jacob loved Rachel. So he said, I will serve you seven years for Rachel, your younger daughter. And Laban said, ah, you know, it's better that I give her to you than that, than I should give her to another man. So stay with me. So Jacob served seven years for Rachel and they seemed only a few days to him because of the love he had for her. Oh, I love that. Seven years. But it says, man, this was just like a few days because of his love for her. I pray that we are growing in our love for Jesus more and more. That this life never feels like a burden a load, a service. It's like, oh, Lord, why don't you just come back already? Oh. I pray it's like, we're just like, Lord, I'm just so in love with you. And I just love being with you. I love serving you. I love letting my life just shine for you, God, to where we're just like, man, I could just do this forever. And we will. Hallelujah. But we got to get through this temporary life right now. And the more that we are just in love with Jesus, the more that just goes by like that. The more it's like, man, it's just like nothing. Like just a few days. This is not a, not a problem at all. Then Jacob said to Laban in verse 21, Give me my wife for my days are fulfilled and I may go into her. And Laban gathered together all the men of the place and made a feast. Now it came to pass in the evening that he took Leah, his daughter, and brought her to Jacob and he went into her. And Laban gave his maid Zilpah to his daughter Leah as a maid. So it came to pass in the morning that behold, Jacob wakes up and he screamed his head off. Leah, what are you doing? I mean, it's nighttime, right? They don't have lights. And Jake, sorry, Laban's kind of thinking, Leah, just slip in there. All right, just sound like your sister right now, okay? Jacob won't know the difference in the morning. It's going to be a different story, but that'll be fine. Deal's done at that point, all right? So it's just like Jacob wakes up. He's like, ah, I got Leah. 
You go to bed, you're thinking you're with Rachel, and you wake up with cross-eyed Leah. That's not a fun deal. And so, what happens here, though, is that Jacob, (laughs) he's getting a bit of a taste of his own medicine, isn't he? It's kind of poetic justice that's going on right now. This is the exact same thing that Jacob did. He did a switcheroony with Isaac and with Esau. He put on the garments, made himself look hairy. When Isaac's ready to put the blessing on, he reaches out, is that you, Esau? Oh man, look at that hair. Let me smell you. Oh man, yep, it's gotta be you. But it's Jacob. Right? Isaac's eyes were dim at that point. He couldn't see too well. Jacob did a switcheroony just like Laban did to him. A taste of his own medicine. This experience is meant to humble Jacob and show his own wickedness. Now, in order, now, so now you know the story, hopefully, that, you know, he works another seven years. He's given Rachel now. And so now he's got two wives. He works 14 years altogether. And now, of course, you got these two ladies, these sisters that are going, man, I really want to fight for the affection of my man. So, like, what can we do? I'm going to have kids. I'm going to win him over with kids. If I have a kid, man, he's going to be loyal to me now. So they just go into a bit of a, a, a baby race right now, right? And Leah, she's the one that just starts putting out the babies. There's a number of kids. Rachel, not so quick here on that. But they're going to have these kids now through, Jacob's going to have these kids through Leah and through Rachel and through two of their maidens that Laban had given to them. And this is going to, become the the 12 tribes of Israel, as you know. Now, David Guzik says this, Leah, though she was neglected by Jacob and despised by Rachel, had a great purpose in God's plan. This is neat. Because the two greatest tribes came from Leah, not Rachel. Levi, which is the priestly tribe, and Judah, the royal tribe, came from Leah. And most importantly, the Messiah comes from Leah, the uglier sister who is neglected and despised but learned to look to the Lord and praise him. And that's what happened as she began to have her children. She had that child Judah, which simply means praise. She began to realize, and it and says there, she conceived again, verse 35 of chapter 29, says she conceived again and bore son and said, now I will praise the Lord. Therefore, she called his name Judah, then she stopped bearing she came to the place, she's like, you know what? If I don't have the affection of my husband, if I don't have the respect of my sister, you know what? I'm going to just praise the Lord now. And God blessed her abundantly. Chapters 31 to 36, we're going to fly through this now because we're going to just wrap this up. Chapters 31 to 36, we see Jacob leave Laban. He desires to meet and make peace with Esau. And that's a terrifying proposition for him he's like going i don't know how it's going to go down but i want to make some peace with esau but in chapter 32 we see another important event take place in jacob's life a night of wrestling look at chapter 32 verse 24 let's see chapter 32 verse 24 then jacob was left alone and a man wrestled with him until the breaking of day Now, when he saw that he did not prevail against him, he touched the socket of his hip and the socket of Jacob's hip was out of joint as he wrestled with him. And he said, let me go for the day breaks. But he said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. So he said to him, what is your name? And he said, Jacob, supplanter, heel catcher, deceiver. But this man notices 
pronouns are capitalized. And he said in verse 28, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel. For you have struggled with God and with men and have prevailed. And Jacob asked saying, tell me your name, I pray. He said, why is it that you ask about my name? And he blessed him there. So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, for I've seen God face to face and my life is preserved. What a neat account here. This man wrestling with Jacob is no doubt again. Jesus Christ coming onto the scene here as Christophany. And he changes that name, heel catcher, to Israel, which means governed by God or ruled by God. This is where the nation of Israel gets their name. It came from one of the patriarchs, Jacob, whose name was turned from that of deceiver, heel catcher, supplanter, to that of Israel, ruled by God. Listen, this is a place that I think God desires all of us to get to, to experience. And sometimes God has to take some difficult measures like he does with Jacob. Puts his, his hip out of joint. Causes him not to, have to, not to be able to fight through any longer. Sometimes we're wrestling against God. Sometimes we're just fighting against God. We don't want to be ruled by God. We want to continue doing our way, our thing, our way. And does God have to bring us to a point where we are kind of brought to our knees? To say, yeah, God, now I realize I need you. Or do we come and surrender and say, God, because it's a whole lot better when we just come and say, Lord, I want to be ruled by you. I've got nothing for myself. I'm just going to make more of a mess of stuff. So God, I want to be ruled by you. I'm giving you my life. And when we do that, man, he takes us, yeah, all right. We're going to walk together here. I'm going to govern your life. I'm going to lead you. God doesn't want to come and do anything by force. But there'll be things that he'll do to, to help us, to inch us along to that place of surrender. But not just to the place of surrender, but to the place of blessing. That's what God has for us. That's what he desired for Jacob, and that's the place he brings him to. Chapter 35, jump over there, verse 22. In fact, we're going to pick it up at the second part of verse 22 of chapter 35. Then the sons of Jacob were 12. The sons of Leah were Reuben, Jacob's firstborn, and Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, and Zebulun. So Leah had how many? Seven? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven kids. Um, oh, sorry, six, thank you. And then the sons of Rachel were Joseph and Benjamin. She just had two, all right? So the, the, the baby race, Leah, won that hands down. Verse 25, the sons of Bilhah, Rachel's maidservant, were Dan and Naphtali. And the sons of Zilpah, Leah's maidservant, were Gad and Asher. These were the sons of Jacob who were born to him in Padanaram. Then Jacob came to his father, Isaac at Mamre, or Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, where Abraham and, and Isaac had dwelt. Now the days of Isaac were 180 years, so Isaac breathed his last and died, and was gathered to his people, being old and full of days, and his sons Esau and Jacob buried him. This is great, because here, at that point of death, there's just this, reconciliation of these brothers Esau and Jacob coming together now and I, I think that's just such a great picture of what Jesus accomplishes for us in, in that place of death where he's brought reconciliation for all people to come and have life and relationship with our heavenly father well the last man we look at is Joseph and he has got probably one of the most amazing stories in the Bible one that we could spend a whole season in which we're going to just breeze through unjustly, I understand. But 
As we get in life of Joseph, it's interesting that, that more is written about him in Scripture than, in, than Abraham, Isaac, or Jacob. And there's only two people in the Bible that are mentioned that are, are mentioned without sin. Not that they didn't have sin <laughs> or sinned, right? But nothing was mentioned other than that. In other words, they lived upright lives. That was, that was Joseph and Daniel, all right? The story of Joseph is a familiar one. Many of us know it, you know, probably better than most stories in the Bible. But it's greatly captured. The, the whole theme of his life and his story is captured by that one verse, Romans eight twenty-eight, That we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. Now, God is indeed sovereign, and he's working all things out for his purposes. And no matter how bad things might look, God can turn it around and bring good out of it. He's at work behind the scenes, and oftentimes we're just not aware of it. And that's what we see in this story of Joseph. That's what makes this account so fun, because we get to see what God is doing kind of behind the scenes, and how he's working things out where it might seem like unfortunate incidences that are happening, but yet God is bringing a greater work from it. So we see Joseph in this account go from the pit to Potiphar to prison to the palace. From the pit to Potiphar to prison to the palace, really it's all about the providence of God, all right? Another P word there for you. But it's really revealing the great providence, the sovereignty of God here in Joseph's life. So we know, uh, again, the story. He's born, he's, you know, one of Jacob's sons, there's 12 of them, and Joseph has this dream where his, his, turns out it's his brothers that are kind of bowing down to him. He's going to be elevated, and he unwisely shares the dream with his brothers. They don't take too well to that, and they're thinking, this guy, he's got to go. Joseph is being favored by his father. He's got this great coat of many colors, this, this great, you know, uh, a coat that just marked that distinguishing, you know, um, uh, role of, of joseph there among his brothers so his brothers really despise him they're not happy about it. joseph's not making things easy for them either and so he said we got to do away with him they take him they throw him in a pit they they end up you know selling him away to slaves or, or sorry as a slave and he gets taken away into egypt now we know what happens there he gets put in Potiphar's house where he begins to serve really well. So again, everything that Joseph did, man, he's got the Lord working through him. And God's using him. And God's got him there for a purpose. Understand that, right? And so he gets ended up in Potiphar's house and he's doing so well. So he's getting raised up. But then Potiphar's wife makes a little pass at him, right? Handsome guy, all alone. She's probably lonely. And so he makes pass at him. And Joseph is like, no way. And he runs out of there, leaving the coat behind, right? And she starts to claim that he was coming on her. So he gets thrown in prison. And they're in prison. He meets two guys. And they start to have some dreams. He starts interpreting these dreams to them. And the one guy gets released. This is the dream foretold. Joseph says, just remember me when you go. The man gets released and he forgets about him. But now this guy that got released from prison, he's working with now Pharaoh, and Pharaoh has a dream. He doesn't understand it. He's looking for counsel, for insight. He's looking for interpretation. Nobody's able to give it. And they're scratching their brain. Suddenly this man, all of a sudden, it dawns on him. I remember when I was in prison. There was a guy there that interpreted our dreams. Let's get him out. So they bring Joseph out, and Joseph is able to interpret this dream so well that this great famine is coming upon the land. So I should tell Pharaoh, we got to stockpile some food. We gotta, and so Pharaoh's just so impressed with Joseph here, they starts to elevate him in position. 
and gives them some command, so, or, or gives them some charge over the land. And a great famine begins to hit all around, just as was foretold in the dream. But now that's where Joseph's family comes back in the picture because they're hit with a famine and they need to get food. And they know, hey, we heard that there's food in Egypt. So they go and guess who they are confronted with? Or a few of them go, Joseph. And Joseph recognizes them. And they don't remember, jo- they're at this point, they're thinking Joseph is long gone. He's probably dead, right? They don't recognize, maybe Joseph's looking different, you know? Didn't the men wear makeup in Egyptian days back then? I don't know, but maybe he's just looking different, right? And so they don't recognize him. But Joseph does. He starts to kind of test them a little bit here. Joseph is realizing that God's got him. God's had him all along. Every trial, every setback was just God working to do something greater through it. And putting Joseph in just such a wonderful place in Egypt there for a, a, a great purpose. Well, Joseph has some, you know, challenges for these guys. He sends them back. He wants to see his younger brother. Sends the boys back. Keeps one of them, Simeon, behind. And he says, bring back Benjamin. Well, word gets back now. They go back and Jacob is looking at this going, what? Are you kidding me? And Jacob stands in great contrast to Joseph. Because all through this episode of Joseph's life, we don't hear him complaining, whining, crying out to God. He's just like, all right, another challenge, another opportunity for God to promote me, right? Well, Jacob now, he gets word that this man in Egypt wants to see the younger brother. And Jacob's freaking out thinking, I've already lost one son. I do not want to lose my younger son, the youngest son. All right? And again, it's the two that are born through Rachel, the one that he loved. Doesn't want to see this happen. And what does Jacob say in chapter 42, verse 36? Look at chapter 42, verse 36. And Jacob, their father, said to them, you have bereaved me. Joseph is no more. Simeon is no more. And you want to take Benjamin? All these things are against me. Man, do you ever feel like that? Everything is going against me. Everything is working against me. Nothing's going right. And he's right to feel that way. It would seem. Joseph had reason to feel that way, but he didn't. And it's a lesson for us to realize, man, even though things might seem like everything is going against me, we have to recognize, God, you're still in control. And you're still moving everything according to your plans and purposes. And I need to trust you. I need to rely upon you, Lord. I need to realize that you're at work even in this thing that I don't understand. And I never have reason to say everything is against me. Because we know we have one who is for us. Jesus Christ. And we never have reason to cry out like Jacob does. Joseph did, but he doesn't. As believers, you can either say, all these things are against me. Or... All things are working out for the good to those that love God. Well, Joseph comes to the end of the story and we know that he brings the the guys back and reveals himself. And they just have a great party, great reconciliation. Eventually, Jacob and, and the rest of the boys come back and they're just like reunited. They are celebrating. They are just excited. And we come to the end of Joseph's story in chapter 50. And I love what Joseph says here. Verse 20. Well, verse 19, Joseph said to, the, to his family there, hey, don't be afraid. 
for I am in the place of God. It's not good. Joseph just recognized, I'm right where God has me. It's not been easy. It's not been fun at times, but I'm in the place of God. I'm right where God needs me. And he says, but as for you, well, you meant evil against me. Oh, don't, don't kid yourselves. Let's not sugarcoat this. You guys didn't treat me very well. I know that. But, but, God meant it for good in order to bring it about as it is this day to save many people alive. How amazing is that? Joseph says, oh, I know what you did was evil, guys, and you meant it for evil. Don't come in here and try to say, well, Joseph, we knew it was all going to work out this way. It was all a part of the plan. Ha, ha, ha. No, that's not what you're going to try to do here. Joseph's like, no, don't you? I know exactly you meant this for evil, but, man, God's greater than you. God's greater than your plans. God's greater than your efforts. God meant it for good. So that he could do something even greater and save many people through it. And that's exactly what's going to happen. As we pick it up in the book of Exodus next week. We're going to find out exactly why Joseph ended up in Egypt. And why his family comes there. And how things move from there. And we'll pick it up there next time. But when we collect the details of Joseph's life we just see a glorious reflection that closely mirrors another life we are so intimately familiar with that we've talked a lot about here tonight. That's the life of Jesus. Now, it's not because Joseph was Jesus' favorite Bible hero that he wanted to emulate him and I want to be just like Joseph. No, it's because God is sovereign and he's been laying the tracks for the glory of Christ through redemptive history that all these people that we come across now are all, again, just being an opportunity to foreshadow the ultimate work that God is going to do in and through Jesus Christ. And Joseph becomes one of the greatest pictures or types of Jesus Christ. Look at just some of these things here that we see in Joseph that we also see in Jesus. That he's the object of his father's special love. This is speaking of both Joseph and Jesus. He had promises of divine exaltation. He was marked by his family. He was sold for pieces of silver. He was stripped of his robe. He was delivered up to the Gentiles. He was falsely accused. He was faithful amid temptation. He was thrown into prison. He stood before rulers. His power was acknowledged. Uh, sorry, I'm jumping in. His power was acknowledged by those in authority. He saves his rebellious brothers from death when they realize who he is. He is exalted after and through humiliation. He embraces God's purpose even though it brings him intense physical harm. He is the instrument God uses at the hands of the Gentiles to bless his people. He welcomes Gentiles to be part of his family. He gives hungry people bread. People must bow their knee before him. We see all that happening in Joseph's life, and we see it happening in Jesus' life. Joseph, so wonderfully, being just that great picture of the work of Jesus Christ. How great it is that God has this all lined up right here in his word. In the very first book of the Bible, the book of Genesis, how it's hinting towards and revealing this ultimate plan of redemption in and through Jesus Christ. All foreshadowed, pictured for us here in these events and stories and people that we look at in Genesis. Amen? Oh man, just love his word. 